Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith, the third, 1832-1914. And we've reached chapter 42 on page 435. The chapter heading is Hawaii and the subheading is The Voyage. Um, thank you for joining me. I hope that you enjoy. I had been solicited by the Honolulu branch under the direction of its president, Brother Gilbert J. Waller, to visit Hawaii, believing such a visit might be productive of good. I had decided to accept the invitation, which accounts for my turning my face at this time towards the setting sun. Not wishing to undertake the long journey alone, I arranged to have Brother Francis M. Sheehy accompany me. Upon my arrival in San Francisco, October the 4th, I was met by Brother J.M. Terry and soon domiciled in the hospitable home of Brother John Cockerton. After being refreshed from my travel, Brother Sheehy came and we spent the day in making preparations for our trip and in visiting some of the saints. Among these were Brother and Sister J.A. Anthony, Sister Kakin and Daughter Gladys and a few others. Next day, about four in the afternoon, we boarded the Alam Edda of the Oceanic Line and I was off on my second trip on the ocean, this time to sail over 2,400 miles between San Francisco and Honolulu. On securing passage, we had sent a message to Brother Waller announcing the date of sailing. The six or seven days occupied in our passage permitted him to make necessary preparations and advertise the projected dedication of the first church edifice erected by the reorganisation there, the particular reason for our visit. In addition, our going had been heralded by a message sent by some reporter in Kansas City to the local commercial advertiser with the addition of pertinent notices furnished by Elder Edward Ingram. So it occurred that the saints of the Honolulu branch were indeed ready for our advent and expe expectation was rife. The voyage was pleasant and uneventful. There had been some cases of bubonic plague discovered at San Francisco in consequence of which vessels sailing from that port were not permitted to land at Honolulu until they had been seven days at sea. The captain slowed down our steamer in order to spend more time on the passage and still was compelled to lay off the town for a number of hours waiting for the stipulated period of quarantine to pass. Thus it was that we did not approach the city until October 12th. I had already mentioned the peculiar state of mind in which I approached my first visit to California, the land of sun and flowers, with its much toted or touted wonders and beauties. I almost dreaded to visit it for fear I should become so enamoured of it that I should not wish to return to my own land of ice and snow. Likewise, I must admit that I approached the Hawaiian Islands with something of similar feeling. I remembered enthusiastic statements about the beauties of the climate, the wonders of the vegetation and the marvels of physical contours and 
formations, I really felt that I would be entering an enchanted land. So far as published and coming within my knowledge, I had read the history of the islands and I found it pleasant to reflect that I was to be in the region where Captain Cook had met adventure and later dreadful fate, where the valiant King David Kalakakua, I'm not quite sure how to say that, had arisen, withstood his enemies and united in one political body all the tribes of the island. In the light of early morning, as our vessel steamed slowly in by the island of Molokai, where the leper colony was located, passed around the heads and approached the harbour. The tropical vegetation coming into further view brought forcibly to my mind that I was indeed about to visit a country which was in almost every particular very different from my own. I was delighted with the prospect and eager to be upon the adventure, though it was not until we landed and I began to move about the city that I began to fully realise the peculiarities of equatorial vegetation. Upon nearing land, I began to note that the touch of modern civilization was also to be seen on every hand, for buildings and residences and public utilities similar to those with which I was familiar greeted my eyes. The type of architecture I noted was more akin to that found in our south than in my own section of the country. In a vague way, I felt a bit disappointed, wondering if in the progress made by the island there had been banished the evidences of the life and customs of the earlier inhabitants and that which was typical of the glory and grandeur of the former native rulers. Next heading, Familiar Duties in a Strange Land. Before we landed, Brother Waller came out on a small boat and, climbing on board, greeted us warmly. He told us about the various preparations which had been made for our reception and accommodation and the programme of services which had been outlined. As we landed, we were met by Brother... Mahuka and other brethren and then taken in a cab to the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, a rambling sort of building erected in the times of Queen Liliuka Alana. Alani. Then Hawaii was ruled as a kingdom, but revolution and later adjustments had wrought many changes which were visible in many particulars. We were given excellent quarters in the hotel in, in this hotel and found the service very pleasant, extreme attention being given to our every need and comfort. We entered upon our church duties with interest, the dedication for which we had mainly made the visit to the islands took place on the day after our arrival. Reporters gathered about us and many sketches of our services and interviews, more or less accurate or faulty as usual, appeared in the papers. The church, a frame structure on the Morka side of King Street, opposite the Catholic cemetery, was built by the group of earnest saints, native and otherwise, which had been shepherded under the administration of Brethren Waller Ingham, John D. White and others of our ministry. It seated some 200 and was filled before the time of the dedicatory services at 11 o'clock. From a report which appeared in the advertiser next day, the following extracts are gleaned.
with simple but effective ceremonies and services, the first church edifice of the body of Christians known as the Reorganised Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was dedicated yesterday morning. It is of the pleasing ecclesiastical architecture of which many examples may be seen scattered through the rural regions, regions of the Mississippi Valley and the Allegheny region. There is adaptation to this climate, however, by an abundance of windows to secure ventilation. The entrance is through a square vestibule formed by a tower terminating in a pleasing cupola. The pulpit platform with small rooms on either side occupies the milka end of the church. The platform is raised higher than is usual in most churches and is reached by steps at the left. The interior is finished in natural wood. The ceiling is vaulted and supported by framed trusses. The pews are in dark stained wood and exceedingly comfortable. The pulpit platform and the organ were pleasingly ornamented with ferns and great jardineries of cut flowers, carnations and asters. The opening hymn was won by Lowell Mason, whose recent death recalls the high place he had in Christian hymnology. A quartet consisting of Mr and Mrs Isaac Hobbertle, Miss Picoy and Mr Kahana Monico sang an anthem. On the platform were President Joseph Smith, eldest son of the Prophet Joseph Smith, Elder F. M. Sheehy, who with other has who with another has charge of the missions of which this is one, and Elder Gilbert J. Waller, who has been in large degree the pillar and support of the church in these islands for many years. The formal acceptance of the church was symbolised by the presentation by Elder Waller on behalf of the congregation of the key of the church edifice to President Smith, who accepted it on behalf of the bishop and returned it to Elder Waller for the use of the congregation. The sermon by President Smith was simple, straightforward presentation of the purpose of the church to be to present the truth to all men as it was presented by Christ to his disciples and those whom he sent to be by them presented to those who should follow after until all should have the opportunity of hearing the gospel. President Smith is a benignant figure, gentle, kindly, yet not lacking vigour nor strength. He is a tall, well-built man, erect in spite of his 75 years, his grey beard softening a face which a slightly aquiline nose would otherwise make too severe. The dedicatory invocation following the sermon was by Elder F. M. Sheehy, who has a voice of marvellous richness and a diction that is almost eloquent in itself. After the regular service, there was the blessing of an infant and the confirmation of a number who had been baptised at an earlier service. The babe presented by the mother was taken in the arms of Elder Sheehy, where the venerable president commended it to the care of a loving father and of him who blessed little children in an invocation dignified and gracious. The confirmation was accompanied by the laying on of hands, and in this service President Smith was assisted by Elder Sheehy, Elder Waller and Elder J.D. White of Cool who had come over for this service. 
Next heading, Friends of Like Faith. The membership of the branch is composed of the Caucasian, Hawaiian, Chinese and Japanese races, the larger part being Hawaiians. The song service was exceptionally good, the leader being brother F.W. Klein with, younger sis with young sister Klein at the organ. Native Hawaiian singers, young and old, make up the choir and they, they sang in good time and with excellent emphasis, making that part of the service very enjoyable. Brother John D. White came to the services from the island of Ku, where he was practising law. It was good to thus meet, so far from home, one who had been a near neighbour. The smiles of greeting and looks of love with which these island saints gave us welcome, their words of cheer and confidence were very pleasant and touched us deeply. Though we were told their names, we could neither remember nor pronounce them afterwards, with the exception of a very few. Brother Mahuka, the deacon, was a fine, solid-looking man in the prime of life and an, effect, uh, an efficient officer, looking after the interests of the congregation quietly and readily, with a promptness and alertness most commendable. I was greeted by a Mr Minston, who was a guest at the mansion house in Nauvoo in 1850, as they understood him to say, there came also a Mr. Francis, resident there, who lived for a time at Richmond, Missouri, where he was acquainted with a number of the Whitmer family, Uncle David himself, Philander, Page, General Donathan, and others whom I had met in that historic town. At the house of a native brother, Robert Pahor, we dined that day and had our first introduction to some native dishes. The food was deliciously prepared and we enjoyed it all, even the national dish poi, which is made from the root of a plant called taro, as near as I could catch the pronunciation. It is by no means unpalatable, seeming much like mush, though with a slight sour taste, with a slightly sour taste. Brother Sheehy ate his with sugar and milk and appeared to relish it, while I, although not disliking it, ate of it sparingly and without trimmings. Fish was served, which had been cooked after being wrapped in leaves, which gave it a fine spicy flavour. It was most excellent, and with chicken and fruit made a good meal for anyone. A later visit to the residence of Brother Hobotso, a native, where the... Wakiki religio class held its weekly meetings, gave us an opportunity to see some of the saints at close view and in branch action. The class was conducted by Brother Waller. It was a pleasure to see the earnest attention and shrewd comment as matters were discussed and applications made. There was a flourishing Sunday school under the efficient supervision of Elder Ingram, who taught also a religio class which met at the church. The elders seemed to be very busy and very happy in their activities. Their efforts were attended by a marked degree of the spirit, even in the study, even in the study classes, the Lord remembering to give his people assurances needed. In prayer, testimony and good works, the saints seemed to be finding comfort, peace and spiritual strength. Among the native brethren, in addition to the deacon named, were priests... Kulana and Kanu 
both of whom were assisting faithfully in carrying forward the work of the branch. Brother Sheehy and I remained a week at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, but believing it to be too expensive, we then asked to be removed elsewhere. Accordingly, we became guests in the home of Brother Edward Ingham. His wife, a most charming, cultured and refined lady, was the daughter of William Bartholomew, an American sea captain, her mother being native Hawaiian. There were three fine daughters in the Ingham home. Singularly, the oldest was very light-complexioned like her father. The second was a little darker and the youngest quite as brunette as her mother. We were comfortably situated in their commodious home, having separate beds in a pleasant room, screened by netting from the attacks of mosquitoes. Sister Ingham and her assistants were solicitous in their care of us, and our sojourn was made very pleasant. Their cottage was outside the city, but a trolley ran within a block or two, and it was not a very long walk to the business part of the island's metropolis. Usually after breakfast, Brother Shehi and I would go to the city on various errands of business or pleasure. We often lunched at the Palm Rest, where we had taken meals while rooming at the hotel. This restaurant was run by native help. The service was excellent and the food greatly similar in its staples to that obtainable in San Francisco. This together, with the addition of certain native products, we found most satisfactory. There was a fruit often served to us at breakfast, which was similar to our musk melons. Bananas were of numberless varieties, one brother, I think, having some six kinds upon his lot. Meats were quite the same as at home. On trips outside the city, I saw rice and banana plants growing in fields much as we raised corn, the land appearing to be very productive and watered by irrigation. The islands of uh, Ohu is called the gem of the Pacific, and indeed, so far as human existence is concerned, it seemed to afford a life that is most ideal. The soil is evidently of volcanic origin, the land in places having been heaved into mountainous heights and in others worn low by the elements. Rivers emerging from the hillsides at sufficiently high points furnished water from irrigation uses all over the rich alluvial soil of the region. Trees of tropical, of tropical varieties were of luxuriant growth. There were coconut, banana, palm and many kinds unknown to me. An effort has been made at different places to grow eucalyptus trees and some other varieties not native there, but the effort was only rarely successful. There was an infinite variety of ferns. One I remember, one, one I remember being called the fishtail from the shape of its fronds. There was also a great variety of flowers, vines and shrubs growing in profusion. Magnolias as large as apple trees were literally covered with flowers of gorgeous hues and heavenly odour. And with variety and interest to match flowers and trees, the people were of cosmopolitan mixture. Americans, Caucasians from almost every other land, Chinese, Portuguese, Japanese and native Hawaiians all forming a kaleidoscopic mirror of humanity well worth studying. The weather when we arrived seemed very hot to us and for several days we felt a degree of lassitude and depression due to what seemed the extreme rigours of the unusual climate. 
In a few days, however, the trade winds began to blow and noticeably moderated the temperature. From then on, our entire stay was very pleasant and enjoyable. We held services four evenings during the week, which followed the dedication for the shihi, alternating with myself in delivering the word. Wednesday evening was the usual prayer service and Saturday evening was exempt. The following Sabbath was a very busy round of services, with some more baptisms included. There was Sunday school in the afternoon, in the forenoon, another for Chinese at Wa Kiki in the afternoon, and religio services at two thirty and six thirty, sandwiched in. Next heading: tripping about. On Monday, the twenty-first, we had a most interesting trip. Brother Henry Moore, with a Spanish wife and four daughters, the oldest being Madeline, about fifteen years old, and the youngest about six live some hundreds of feet above sea level, well up in Nuanu Valley, pronounced Nuanu. There we spent a pleasant day, taking midday and evening meals at their hospitable board. Brother Moore was the caretaker of the three or four small reservoirs in the upper part of the valley from which a part of the city is supplied with water. These are fed by the copious rainfalls of the upper valley, coming from clouds driven before trade winds which, striking the ridges of the mountain range, condense their moisture on the hither side into frequent showers, more or less heavy according to the season. This valley is the one into and through which the conquering king Kamehameha drove the natives of the island of Ahu and up and over the Pali precipice at its upper end. There the brave defenders sacrificed themselves by plunging down the steeps rather than submit to capture and its consequences. After the coming of the white people, the sheer wall at the end of the valley was pierced and a good wagon road made all over its crest and down the northeastern side of the mountain into the valleys along the coast. This is a very fertile region pretty well occupied by gardeners of various nationalities, mainly Portuguese, Chinese and Japanese, with here and there an admixture of Hawaiian blood. That evening, returning to the city and services, I took up the subject of marriage, stating as clearly and exhaustively as I could in the time at my disposal, the attitude our church assumed on that much-discussed topic. Quite a number of Utah people were present, including Elders Anderson and Woolley. I tried to avoid using harsh terms or speaking disrespectfully of anyone, but attempted to deal with directness and certainty with principles and commands given of God to the church. One day we had the pleasure of driving about the island of Ohu. An eruption at one time had left near the eastern portion of the city of Honolulu, a formation called the Punch Bowl, possibly from some fancied resemblance to that receptacle of social mischief brewing refreshment, popular in society's fashionable circles. On the afternoon of Tuesday the 22nd, we visited this elevation and from its hollow top obtained an excellent view of the city and its suburbs. The valleys about the distant ocean and its shoreline and the Pearl and Honolulu harbours. We were accompanied on this trip by Brother David Piccio, his daughter Marie, 
a teacher in the public schools and his little granddaughter, Gardy. Returning, we called at the Lululo home, a place established for the use and benefit of aged native Hawaiians. Our escort introduced us to Mrs Weaver, the matron, a sister of General Armstrong, who was connected with the Negro School at Hampton, Virginia. This lady gave us a cordial invitation to enter and see their accommodations. We saw the inmates at their evening meal, the principal article of which was poi, evidently a word equivalent to our word porridge, made, as I have said, from the root called taro, boiled and pounded into a thick paste. This root is also sometimes baked in texture and flavour, being much like the yam or sweet potato. The natives usually eat it without dressing, but Americans like, often like the addition of sugar and milk. Poi and fish are the staples of Hawaiian food, though upon tables in the city where we were entertained, there usually appeared a variety of other foods, unexcelled in quality and quality, even in the States. I remember that at one such meal, Brother Sheehy remarked, we cannot add to your menu, we have nothing apparently that you have not. Next heading, Chinese food. One of our unique experiences was when we went with Brethren Waller, Ingham and others to eat at a Chinese restaurant. I cannot fully describe the Chinese food we ate there, prepared by Chinese cooks and served in Chinese fashion. The reader may draw his own conclusion when I say that as nearly as I can express it in English, the menu was boiled abalone, mushrooms and lotus duck, boiled chicken, oyster salad, roasted pigeon, fishy fungus, fried rib, boiled mullet, kidney soup and rice instead of bread. Those who know my cosmopolitan tasting food will know I found it very palatable. It was most excellently prepared and was crowned by a small cup of tea made as, the own, as only the Chinese can make it. To preserve Epicurean tradition, there were numbers around the festal board, not 13 but 11. Brother Sheehy and I were accounted the guests of honour and surrounding the circular table were the hosts. Elders Waller and Incom, Mr Tam Hung, Lu Chi, Tom Ayo, Tu Shei Chin, Mr Wu Tong, Hop Ki and Wa Sir. We thoroughly enjoyed this occasion and the associations it offered. These men could speak English, were well known to our brethren and among their own people were men of good repute. The next day we lunched there again, repeating our pleasure in the Chinese dishes, excellent in quality and enjoyable in taste. No matter what may be said by others in objection to Chinese food, I saw no reason from our experiences on those two days to find anything but commendation for what we received, and I was glad to frankly acknowledge my pleasure to the owner of the restaurant, his assistants and our hosts on the occasion. The second day, Brother Sheehy and I were accompanied only by Brother Tom Oyo. Next heading, a tour of the island. Brother Waller had in his employ a very interesting and intelligent native by the name of Bikoy, with whom he arranged a trip about the island. We left the city by wagon about three in the afternoon, lay the Mormon sugar plantation settlement 33 miles away being our objective 
Reaching the southwest corner of the island, we turned toward the sea and by the light of the moon wound along the edge of the foothills. It was a most enchanting drive, romantic were one so inclined and unique in my experience. About nine o'clock we stopped to feed the team and to eat our own lunch, sitting on the sandy seashore. We enjoyed the refreshments, though the air was quite chilly and the mosquitoes aggressive. Resuming our journey about midnight, we paused again to witness a most wonderful display of nature, a rainbow by moonlight, brilliantly outlined against the side of the mountain, truly a most remarkable sight. It was 1.30am when we at last reached the summer cottage of Mr Cecil Brown, which had been placed at our disposal. There we found a caretaker ready to receive us. We were soon shown to our beds, where, under welcome cover and secure from mosquito attacks, we enjoyed a much appreciated rest and sleep. Arrangements had been made for me to speak in the Mormon tabernacle at this place, and also in the schoolhouse, both of which appointments I filled, speaking to the Mormons in the evening on questions upon which our churches differed, my sermon being interpreted for them by our deacon Mauka, Brother Waller, who understood and spoke the native language, said the brother did very well in translating my message into their tongue. I hope good resulted. I was kindly treated by Elders Bridges, Giles and Harmon, the latter of whom was the presiding officer of the settlement. I found it rather hard work, though, to speak through an interpreter. Thoughts usually crowded too fast upon me to welcome the interruptions necessary to such a procedure. A choir sung for us, flowers for our buttonholes were given us, and a native hung a lee around my neck. The next morning at 7.30 we left the cottage and drove through Kauka, where 800 acres of cane given employment to 1,000 people. Portuguese, Japanese and Chinese, the latter the best light. We lunched at a Chinese restaurant rode up to the dam in a launch and drove to Wak-i-Awa, situated in the highlands of the Pineapple Belt. There we put up a, at Henry C. Brown's Hotel, where we met and chatted with several interesting people, among a, them a Professor Craw and his wife. We slept in a cottage and annexed to the hotel and had a most refreshing rest. After breakfast... Early the next day, Saturday, we took a drive through the pineapple plantations. Being much interested in all we observed, I may say that so far as the Mormon sugar industry at late was concerned, at lay was concerned, it appeared that everything about it was kept closely under the secret and dominant rule of the churchy hierarchy. We returned to Honolulu on the southwest side of the island, passing the Ohu, sugar fields and mills. There we were shown through the establishments by a Mr. Bull, relative of old Bull of violin fame. We also passed Pearl City and Colonel Damon's estate, reaching Honolulu at 12.45 and a delightful meal at Brother Ingham's. I should add that in our visit to the seashore, Brethren Sheehy and Walla enjoyed a dip in the ocean, but owing to my fears of facial disturbance, I did not allow myself the privilege. Next heading, a feast. One day, by previous arrangement, in which I did not share a loo feast in native Hawaiian costume, 
was given at the residence of Mr and Mrs Henry Parrow in Waikiki. The saints had wished to give this feast on my birthday, but it had been decided that we would not remain until that date, November 6th. The following account of the festival is gleaned from the very full report which appeared in the advertiser. I most admirably appointed Lou was given yesterday afternoon at the residence of Mr and Mrs Henry Pell in honour of President Joseph Smith and Elder Sheehy of the Reorganised Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was the first occasion of the kind either of these gentlemen had experienced and it was thoroughly enjoyed by them and by a number of other visitors in the islands and by a company of at least 300 Kamayanese of longer or shorter residence here. The guests were welcomed on entering the grounds at the Ina Road, Waikiki. The grounds are ample and the lawn well kept. The lua was served in a large tent which pleasantly broke the rather generous trade wind. The floor of the tent was covered with mats about the tables and with coconut fronds every elsewhere. There were six long low tables, two of them were covered with yellow crepe paper with yellow chrysanthemums in profusion for decoration. Two were in purple, asters being the decoration, two were in scarlet with carnations as decorations. The tables were low so that the true Hawaiian style of seating on lohola mats was followed a method provocative of many jokes and moments among those to whom it is an unaccustomed position. President Smith, in spite of his 75 years, adapted himself to it with grace and cheerfulness. The tables were loaded with the accustomed things of the lower, all excellently cooked or prepared. The poi was served in coconut bowls. Among those present, beside the guests of honour, were Mr and Mrs E. Ingham, G. J. Waller, Mr. and Mrs. W. D. Willard of Los Angeles, Mr. and Mrs. Campbell of New York, Mr. and Mrs. Fishburne of San Diego, Dr. and Mrs. J. M. Whitney, J. R. H. Trent, J. H. Trent, Captain Pilts, Dr. W. T. Montserrat, Ralph S. Hosmer, Mr. and Mrs. C. L. Rhodes, Mrs. George Lucas, Harry Winthrop Tappan of Los Angeles, Miss Picoy, Miss Poho, Mr. and Mrs. Isaac Hobottle, Mrs. Emma Kulik, Senator Kalalani, Mr. and Mrs. Moses K. Nakuni, Mrs. Wright, Miss Kaheli, the Mrs. Kinney, Mrs. Wilson, Mrs. Bittman, Mrs. Hearn, Miss Vandenberg, Miss Marshall, Judge J. L. Kulukal, Mr. and Mrs. J. Mauka, John W. Francis, Supervisor Dwight, Mr. and Mrs. Harry Swinton, D. Kalani, Jr., and many others. The Hawaiian band was in attendance and rendered a very pleasing programme of largely Hawaiian music. Miss Paihi sang a number of songs to the accompaniment of the band. Her singing was very much enjoyed. Among the interesting incidents of the occasion was the meeting of President Smith and Mrs J M Whitney. 
It was Mrs. Whitney's father, Mr. L. L. Rice, who was who found the long lost and diligently searched for Spalding manuscript, the remnants of a mass of matter that had come to him in the purchase of a printing office in Painesville, Ohio, years before. Mrs. Whitney said to President Smith that she did not wonder that the Latter-day Saints considered the manner of the preservation of this manuscript providential when it was considered that it had been carried around by her father during many years and many removals without any knowledge that it was in his possession or thought that it or any of the manuscripts among which it was was of great value. The Spalding manuscript, which was the manuscript of a romance written by one Solomon Spalding, was claimed by the opponents of Mormonism to have been the original or to have obtained to contain the ideas of the Book of Mormon. In other words, that Joseph Smith had transcribed or paraphrased this romance into the Book of Mormon. To disprove this, the manuscript was sought everywhere by the Mormons, and when it was thus found after many years, the mere reading showed that it had nothing in common with the Book of Mormon. Following the Lua, there were short addresses by President Smith and Elder Sheehy. They were introduced by David Kalani Jr., who was the master of ceremonies for this occasion. President Smith spoke of the pleasure it gave him to visit these islands and of the warm welcome he had received. He had found through a long life that men were generally kindly everywhere, and he took it as a token of the universal brotherhood of man. He had been his happiness. It had been his happiness to live during the era of great material progress. He had seen the development of transportation from the ox cart to the locomotive and the great steamship and of light from the tallow dip to electricity. He bore on his hands the evidence of injury by the first harvester, the sickle, and he had seen the development up to the self-binding machine. He believed it the privilege of the Anglo-Saxon to lead in these material developments and thereby to be a great blessing to the whole human race. I can Back to the words of Joseph Smith. I confess to a feeling of gratitude and pleasant recollections, as I call this feast to mind. We were seated upon mats laid upon the ground, without chairs, and feasted at a low table, spread with the abundance of nature, splendidly prepared. We used the native methods of eating, by which all were expected to partake without knives or forks, and to to try to prove themselves adepts at this primitive fashion of eating. The occasion was so fraught with friendliness on every hand that we enjoyed it to the full. Brother David Kalani Jr., who presided, was a young man of good promise. He was acting priest of the branch, was also clerk of the county court, and had been for something like two years secretary to the delegate at Washington, well-known, respected, a very pleasant and able man. Our immediate neighbour at table was the wife of Dr. J.M. Whitney, daughter of Mr. L.L. Rice, with whom the manuscript found story was found at Honolulu by Reverend Fairchilds of Oberline College. The church has been permitted to publish this story and give it to the world. At their invitation, I visited Dr. and Mrs. Whitney in their home and spent several pleasant hours in conversing with them.
Next heading, Pleasant Associations. One of the notable and honourable citizens of Honolulu was Colonel S.M. Damon, a man of business and a lawyer of some repute. By some means, left partly to conjecture, he had come into the possession of the residence of the former king, Kamehameha. The estate lay some two or three miles north of the city, but was easily reached by Trolley Line, which ran near his residence. Having been invited to visit him, Brother Waller and I made our way thither. One day, were met at the entrance by our cordial host and were escorted to his bungalow. After a little rest and some cool refreshments, he showed us about his garden and grounds. These included ponds from which fish to supply his table were taken at will. He had taken pains to secure every possible variety of equatorial plant, shrub and tree which appealed to him and flowers and fruits were there in great profusion. Measured by outward appearances, it was seen that by some effort and care he had succeeded in creating an earthly paradise which, if not equaling, must indeed have compared favourably with the traditional traditionally ideal one in Eden. He resided in the cottage which had been the home of the king, the furniture being the same as when occupied by the ruler. The great bed attested to the unusual size of the early potentate. Colonel Damon treated us royally and when we finally wearied after spending most of the afternoon with him, he accompanied us to the gate. With his goodbye, he promised to send me a gift of some particularly excellent bananas, which promise, I may add, the gentleman forgot to remember. In going to and from this palatial home, we passed the United States barracks, or a portion of them, and I heard the story that when they were in process of construction, Colonel Damon's son had been killed there in a quarrel with a rather disputable Irish labourer. So flagrant seemed this act in the eyes of the people that summary punishment would have been meted to the murderer but for the interference of the colonel himself, who seemed to have some exalted notion of extending mercy. I understood he suffered the culprit to go unpunished upon the hypothesis that the son had possibly unnecessarily involved himself in the quarrel. One day I went with Brother John White to Wakaki Beach, watched the bathers and listened to the music. The surf riding was most interesting. All Hawaiians seem as much at home in the water as on land, even very small children being able to dive and swim with ease. We visited the aquarium where an almost unlimited variety of water inhabitants were to be seen. That evening I dived, dined with the family of Brother Isaac Harbottle. Besides being musical and a great help in our work, Brother Harbottle was a collector of taxes for the government. Early after my arrival in Honolulu, I was taken by Brother Waller to pay, to pay my respects to certain officials. At the executive building, we called upon Governor Freer and Judge Dole and also visited United States District At Attorney Breckens and High Sheriff Henry. In the afternoon, we visited the prison and met Mr Wood, the superintendent. One forenoon was pleasantly spent in sightseeing about the island, the trip being made in an automobile 
through the courtesy of Mr Trent, a real estate agent. At another time, I visited the museum and the Kamamaha public schools. These places were all very interesting to me. One day, we were shown through the slaughterhouse and tannery of the Metropolitan Meat Company, of which Brother Wallah was manager. I was especially interested in the tannery. The foreman who accompanied me through answered my many questions and showed me the different kinds of leather made there. I saw the various processes of treatment as far as they could be seen in an hour or two. It was explained how under the modern process a hide, especially of the ordinary grades, could be made into leather in 48 hours. It was admitted, however, that as far as sole leather was concerned, those methods did not give the firmness and solidity that were obtained by the ancient and time-honoured tan bark process. Brother Waller gave me a practical and acceptable souvenir of this visit by having my suitcase recovered with a fine grade of leather, tanned in this establishment. He was a director in the company which had been formed, as I suppose, in England. It carried on an extensive business in furnishing the city of Honolulu with many kinds of meat specialising in that from cattle. I think that at the time of my visit, Brother Waller was one of the two remaining directors and that the reorganisation of the firm was pending before the stockholders. He was in some anxiety as to what would be done and whether or not his administration as the active business manager had been acceptable and would be continued. He feared that possibly his connection with us as a people and his activities in propagating our doctrine and the interests of our branch there might be considered as jeopardising his business sufficiency to some extent. He hoped for the best, however. It is now seven years since I was there and I am glad to say Brother Waller still holds his place of responsibility in the business and an enviable one in the commercial circles of the city and is well, still very active in church, as all of which would seem to show that his re religion had in no manner impaired his secular successes or his efficiency as an able man of business. The next heading, Lees. A trite saying has it that all things have an end. So did my visit. It was determined that I should return home on the Alameda sailing November 6th, while Brother Sheehy was to stay another month or longer, if so led to do. In the preceding account of my trip to Hawaii, I have taken liberal extracts from my letters to the Herald at the time, believing that a fairly full account of what I deemed one of the most important events of my life, and certainly one of the most pleasing, has proper place in these memoirs. Thus, I do not offer apologies for the space occupied in the relation of this visit to the paradise of the Pacific, which holds such a bright spot in my memory. On the morning of my 75th birth anniversary, accompanied by a large number of saints, I went to the dock, where followed much leave-taking, amidst many gay remarks, smiles, regrets and quiet tears. Goodbyes were said and a large number of lays or reefs were placed around my neck. I went aboard with these strings of flowers, shells or beads, literally weighing down my shoulders. This is a typically Hawaiian custom of saying farewell and wishing Godspeed, and a very pretty one it is. 
At the close of the lua, the week before, the master of the Hawaiian band which had played there told me he would have his musicians at the wharf when I left to see me depart. As he laconally expressed it in his broken way, I will blow you off, Brother Smith. I blow you off with my band. Sure enough, the band was there, the leader in high forever, and much gay and martial music as well as national airs gave a stirring thrill to my departure. When the moment finally arrived and our boat slipped from its moorings to slide out into deeper waters, I stood at the rail watching regretfully the receding pier with its throng of friends and well-wishers, knowing I would not see them again in life. Bearing in the sultry heat and heavy and almost stifling burden of lays, I responded to the waving hands, fluttering handkerchiefs and lifted hats until they were lost to sight. The perishable lees were consigned to the sea waves, the only tribute I paid to the trident-armed ruler of the deep on the whole trip, while those of beads and shells I brought home with me and distributed among the women of, and girls of my family. I believe every daughter, daughter-in-law and granddaughter received one besides the wife. Some were very beautiful and all, whether of shells or flowers, must have cost the Hawaiian sisters considerable painstaking care and patient labour. Next heading, homeward bound. My return trip was quite like the outgoing one in most particulars, with the main difference that we were going north-easterly instead of south-westerly. There were also more passengers aboard. At first there was a heavy sea, and the boat would go into deep trolls, from which rising it would turn or roll the other way with a decided lurch. The only time the ship seemed really still was when the wind blew strongly and a storm seemed brewing. Then a sail would be run up about mid-ship, which steadied the vessel to a considerable degree. There was a band of jolly good fellows on board who enjoyed themselves in their own way and among themselves, both in the salon and at the table. Their conduct of boisterous hilarity was quite in contrast to the sobriety of my table mates. My seat was next to and at the right of the second officer. The captain was at the head of the table and two officers at the foot. My nearest seatmate was a man from down east, rather pleasant but not over-talkative. Other neighbours were Mr Walter Brown and wife from Independence. Of these I have made mentioned heretofore. Having seen me at some of my visits to Independence and to the home of her father, Mr Joseph Mercer, she and I quickly formed acquaintance. After the first meal and about as soon as we were out of sight of land, she became seasick and her seat at table was vacant for two or three days. Indeed, I think it was not until the fourth day out that she appeared again at table looking rather wan, but insisting that she was all right. Opposite me sat a tall, sickly-looking man, a Reverend Dodge, who had been for some time on the island of Mao. He had come from the east, as he said, to regain his health, but had overstayed and was suffering from the lack of suitable food. Indeed, I can well believe that, for he had an unfortunate attack of mal de mer at the table, which caused him to retire in great haste and the cabin boys to have some work in getting him to his stateroom. However, his illness was a short one, notwithstanding he himself was a long one, being over six feet tall. As his deck chair was near mine, we formed a desultory speaking acquaintance. 
One incident occurred at table which brought me some mortification. It was caused by my very unwise attempt to eat a piece of pickle, which served me a rather bad trick by starting up my neuralgia. I sprang from my seat convulsively as the paroxysm of pain twisted my face in agony. When it passed, I apologised and sat to, down to await, in some embarrassment, the finish of the meal. Mrs Brown, who sat near, was quite sympathetic. She did not express surprise at my action, for the reason that she had suffered some from the same affliction herself and knew something of its terrors. There was on board a native Hawaiian, a member of the band, which had played at the low and had learned who I was. There was also a brother, George Cavanno. Cavanno. An Irishman taking steerage passage to Los Angeles where he was to take charge of the grounds of some wealthy gentleman. I sometimes used to chat with him at the point or dividing line where the passengers of both classes could meet. These two gave out who I was with the result that I was invited by the purser with the sanction of the captain, to conduct the religious service on Sunday and preach to the passengers. I accepted the invitation and had quite a good-sized audience in the salon. I felt it good fortune that the Reverend Dodge kindly assisted me by reading the hymns and leading the singing. The passengers joined in this part of the service very heartily, including some two or three members of a disbanded troupe of entertainers, one of whom played the piano for the hymns. I felt it to be a curious spectacle as I stood at one end of the great salon and, the, and faced the roomful of listeners, listeners, their seats arranged in the spaces between the dining tables. I took for my text the familiar statement, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me, using it as a sort of apology for my believing differently from my so-called fellow Christians. I cannot say that I had brilliant success, though at the close I was warmly congratulated by one or two of the jolly good fellows and also complimented by the Reverend Dodge. This made me feel I had no reason to find fault with myself nor with the occasion, even though the mass of listeners had expressed no interest. The trip coming home was made in shorter time than going, for there was no embargo or restrictions about entering the San Francisco port. We could have run in even sooner, only let the captain prefer to saunter along the last half day in order to get into dock quite early in the morning. Next heading, Through the Golden Gate. Though I had written Brother Terry the time of my intended arrival, there was no one at the wharf to meet me when at last we sailed in through the Golden Gate. I hired a lad to carry part of my luggage as we started from the dock. We shortly met Brother Terry, however, hurrying from the streetcar. I was glad to see him and to have him relieve me of part of my luggage, for the kind members of the church in Hawaii had loaded me down with gifts of many kinds, an assortment of cocoa nuts, dishes, mats, hats, souvenirs and specimens of interest. We found our way to Sister Anthony's. I had, attended, I had intended going straight home, but yielding to Brother Terry's solicitation, decided to remain in San Francisco a few days and preach to the saints there and in Oakland and visit among them as requested. I will continue in the next episode. Thank you for listening.